0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 2 of the BAD-EM podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Still, and this is a podcast where we discuss the bigger picture of emergency medicine in South Africa and Africa. BAD-EM stands for Brave African Discussions in Emergency Medicine. If you haven't listened to our first episode yet, hop on over and go and have a listen to that. Please also note that it's in two parts, so don't miss out on the good stuff in part 2. As always, the views expressed do not represent any institutions that my guests represent and are purely personal. In this month's episode, I chat to Professor Clint Hendrickson, who is the head of division of emergency medicine at the University of Cape Town. In this episode, we chat about research and how it needs to be adapted to a low-middle income setting. We also chat about how emergency medicine fits into the South African healthcare system and the benefit it provides for everybody else. And we also discuss how to bridge the gap and fix communication between different departments in South African meds, clinical departments, academic departments, service clinicians, and policymakers, and how to teach communication skills to undergraduates and all other levels of South African healthcare workers to try and get us all on the same page. Without further ado, let's get going. Hi, Clint. Could you start by introducing yourself and giving us a brief rundown of your professional career so far?
1: Thank you. So, um, yeah, I'm Clint. Uh, I'm an emergency physician that was um, born and bred in Stellenbosch. I did my undergrad at the University of Stellenbosch and then went to the Eastern Cape for my internship and in community service in the Port Elizabeth. And I think that's why I got exposed to acute care. Let me not say emergency medicine. Um, And that's where I got my initial interest. And thereafter, I went to Ireland uh, and worked in two different settings there, in a district-level hospital and then in an acute care, uh, urgent care setting. And that's when I realized that I wanted to do emergency medicine. I became an emergency medicine registrar shortly thereafter. And uh, once I qualified as a EM physician, I worked at Mittels Plain Hospital For eight years. Um, Just Plain Hospital is uh, the busiest emergency center in the Western Cape and uh, I have fond memories. And um, since last year, 1st of Jan, I have been uh, the head of division here at University of Cape Town uh, for emergency medicine and um, part of a very dynamic team that makes a lot of difference and My perception of what my purpose is and my vision has changed so many times during my short career, but currently I see myself as someone trying to improve health outcomes for patients with emergency needs, but specifically those where there are inequities and those where access to care is a problem.
0: I know that one of your big passions is research. How do we approach research and policy that is made in high-income settings and use it in a constructive way and an equitable way in a low-resource setting like South Africa?
1: So evidence-based medicine, let me start There is It's slightly different, differently practiced in low-middle-income countries. It, it, it's slightly more complex. So it's a combination of the best ev- evidence that we have combined with the provider expertise and then combined with the patient values and expectations. And I, I must admit that in low middle income countries, we don't have good uh, evidence for most things pertaining to emergency care. Um, there's evidence is very limited, and, and we find ourselves in a position where we have adopted um, most of the guidelines and evidence from high income countries. And, and more often than not, it's not applicable to our settings, so it becomes quite difficult. So we find ourselves in a situation where the provider expertise, that component of evidence-based medicine usually dominates the decision-making and it's informed by the evidence. So it's evidence-informed decision-making that's driven by provider expertise. And that's how I could summarize uh, decisions on the emergency care platform. The problem with that is it makes standardization very, very difficult. Another thing that I... Think we should talk about is the the, v- the value of research in our setting. Uh, what I've learned during the last couple of years is that if we want to improve anything, it's it's it takes a lot more than just research. A lot more than just good quality research. Research be- is a, is a component that informs the improvement process, and um. If we ask ourselves, for example, how do we improve the outcomes of patients for a specific uh, condition, the best way to tackle that is to to firstly define the problem. And that's where I usually find the most difficult to do, is to define the problem. What is it that we actually want to achieve? So to define the problem, and then to unpack that problem, to spend time and unpacking the problem and, and asking ourselves: is it a problem with policy? Is it a problem with training, education? Is there a gap in the science, et cetera? Is it a, a problem with um, compliance and so on? And the gaps in science is where the research uh, would, would come in. And another and another point that I want to make with regards to improving health systems with research. Um, doing research in in our silo as uh, within emergency care or in emergency centers only also may not be the best outcome. Looking at a patient's health outcomes, looking at the pathway to care, um, the care pathway of a patient probably will provide the best outcome. So f- what I mean by that, so from the time of the onset of symptoms right to the end where the rehabilitation ends. So for example, if we look at stroke research, if we have a very siloed approach, if we look at it from a neuro- neurology a- a point of view, there's a lot of research in lysis, et cetera, et cetera. If we look at it from an emergency medicine point of view, it's uh, quick access, quick triage, quick identification so that they can get lysis, et cetera. If you look at it on a systems-based or on a care pathway-based uh, um, approach, you will notice that Quite a lot of patients don't with strokes don't even reach the hospital, yeah. and those that reach the hospital reach the hospital. In, there are quite a lot of delays from the time of symptom onset until they actually reach the hospital. So, so the patients that benefit from lysis is a very, very small proportion of the burden of stroke uh, um, in our population. and f- so only when you look at it from a longitudinal point of view will you notice where the research or where your input would make the most uh, uh, impact. And that is something that we need to move towards. So it, so it has to be a coordinated process and, and the question needs to be right. The question is how do you improve stroke outcomes, not how do you get patients to, um, to lysis to quicker. And, and that's so, so there's a couple of fundamental differences in how research should happen. Number one, it, it has to happen within uh, um, improvement um, continuum which takes into consideration um, education, training, policy, uh, et cetera, and the science point of view. And number two, it's probably better looking at it on a longitudinal way um, to ensure that we get the the correct outcomes.
0: So basically trying to um, adopt first world medicine research into a third world might actually lead to more harm than good because we're not going to achieve it in a lot of cases. And and if we don't achieve it, it will lead to not only for the patient, but for the healthcare provider, a lot of stress and frustration and, uh, stressful phone calls and trying to rush someone off for a CT scan that is either going to take too long or not be beneficial or miss any windows of intervention. So it's actually the wrong thing to do to start with.
1: So I do agree. I do agree with you. Um, I think think that treatment and improvement has been very siloed at the moment. We've been doing it in silos. We're trying to do what's best according to our perceptions in emergency medicine while the patient is in the emergency center. The medicine department is doing what they think is best with regards to their perceived outcomes. Um, EMS is doing the best according to their perceived outcomes. But it's very difficult to really understand the cost-benefit um, of our interventions if you don't look at it across the spectrum. And what we've, do, what we've done by adopting high-income country guidelines and evidence into our practice, we have most likely created unachievable Uh, expectations, or unrealistic expectations, and as you said, this can result, number one, in uh, increased health expenditures, and can actually worsen patient care, and if you ask yourself the question, specifically from an emergency medicine point of view, which we know is not a, is a resource-intensive specialization, how much money can we spend on one patient, for example, is it can we justify spending twenty thousand rand on one patient, on each patient requiring CPR and then ICU um, ICUK, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, even if the outcomes is is prognost- extremely poor
0: from a and you can t- you can prognostify you can that tr- from the beginning from
1: the beginning. So if we our evidence suggests that out of hospital uh, cardiac arrest, for example, have extremely poor outcomes, close to a zero percent. So the question is: Can you justify in our fiscal climate all the, the resources that we are um, utilizing, and that includes training and education and all that, to achieve something that's probably unachievable? But it reflects it 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 reflects an expectation that we have adopted from a different health setting. Yeah. So um, it it does pose quite a few questions with regards to what it, what should we be doing and, and that speaks to our identity and and what we perceive emergency medicine to be and that is yeah. a very very difficult conversation that is not uh, accepted by many
0: and was, could you just elaborate on that a bit it's something i've thought about quite a lot because yeah. uh, in emergency medicine we often sort of get annoyed non-emergency cases and everyone pitching up and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of the medical, in terms of the actual emergencies that pitch up, a lot of them are hugely burdensome, are hugely cost uh, resource intensive, like you said, Uh, the sort of cardiac arrest, the polytrauma, the uh, the aortic dissection that you read about on the latest uh, EM cases thing or... and from a realistic standpoint, our job is actually triage of patients and 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 sort of getting the best outcome for every patient that comes through our door. And we are the one skill that you learn as an emergency medicine doctor, especially in a low-resource setting, is how to risk stratify patients, who needs what and when, and how urgently do they need it, what workup do they need and when do they need it, and um, you learn how to, how to redirect patients to appropriate care. And that sounds, that sounds bad, but, and it sounds like a, a thankless job or a meaningless job, but we are, as the emergency medicine doctor, as the decision maker, in a very crucial point in a patient's journey of their healthcare. you're making a very important decision. And that decision can, can be the pivot in terms of good outcome or bad outcome. So in terms of our job description, or our, peop- or our perception of what we do in emergency medicine, and, and who does it, and a lot of people, like a lot of people say, when you do, when you tell them that you do emergency medicine, that you are, that must be so exciting, and that must be adrenaline uh, all the time. And you, know, well, it's actually pretty much primary care with the with a splash of adrenaline in between, very seldomly actually. The more you go on, um, how would you see our our speciality going forward?
1: So this is a difficult question and I think the fiscal climate that we're in um, has actually forced us to rethink quite a lot of what we do. Um, they say there's nothing like a crisis to get you to rethink and redesign things. So. There's an interesting concept in emergency care is how much is about the individual patient and how much is about the population outcomes. What are we trying to achieve with emergency medicine or emergency care uh, provision? Are we trying to um, improve health outcomes of a population or that of a patient? And it's a very difficult discussion. Once again, everything needs to be coordinated. If if we talk about resources um, that we uh, implement, this needs to take into consideration the population health and the budget, the health budget of the population, et cetera. How do we justify spending a lot of resources on one patient versus um, taking it away from a different cohort of patients that may have benefited from it differently? And that's a very difficult question, but it's something that we probably need to um, ask ourselves more. Our role, if our role is to improve health outcomes, it requires a much bigger coordinated process and collaborative effect. I'm gonna come back to your question about what I think our role is. So emergency medicine has evolved during the last two decades uh, into the beast that it is currently. And many factors have affected that evolution. Not all good, not all bad. Um, the health system, if you look at access to care at the moment, there are um, definite gaps in the health system. If you look at how can patients access health care? Um, in the public sector, they've got very, very few options. They have the 24-hour emergency centers, and they've got the primary health care sector. And that's essentially how they access health care. Um, the only 24-7 service available for patients is emergency medicine in, in the larger hospitals. Uh, if you look at the private sector, there are pharmacies that they can access directly. with GPs. There are different fora. There's even telephonic uh, um, consultations, et cetera, et cetera. So they've got a much broader spectrum of options. So emergency medicine has evolved into... Um, the specialty that manages unscheduled health care and we know that not all unscheduled health care uh, needs uh, require emergency medicine intervention or intervention. emergency intervention exactly yeah. so we, we have evolved into the department or the area a geographical area that manages everyone that comes into a facility that presents into a facility all unscheduled care. And, and much of this is as a result of a lack of access elsewhere for these patients. It is something that we've assumed to our own detriment. And now, with the capacity demand mismatch growing bigger and bigger, we find ourselves struggling to perform our core duty, which is treating the emergencies. Yeah. So well, our,
0: our, our perceived core duties. Our perceived
1: core duties. Coming back to your main question, if you look at what value, it's about what value can emergency medicine and emergency care bring to our health system? If you look at that, I see ourselves as the generalists of hospitals, similarly to primary to family physicians being the gen- generalists of the primary healthcare sector and the community health uh, uh, sector. And the one benefit that we have is because of our knowledge, because of our insight of the health system, the general health system, and the resources, and our unique position in the health system, we have the competency, the skill to dictate the movement of patients and, and, and um, dictate the resources that patients used, as you mentioned earlier on. So we dictate patient movement and resources uh, that they require in the beginning, and that creates a sense of order and stability in the health system. And this is something that is um, not often spoken about, but we create stability in health facilities by dictating patient movements and resource utilization. And and we we act as a buffer between those who present to facilities and the health systems, as well as those waiting on the ward system or the outpatient clinics or the the outpatient clinics i think another big function or value of emergency care emergency medicine and emergency care provision is that in the broader health system we create stability from a global health point of view so with regards to pandemics and outbreaks and other insults we i'm not saying we act as the buffer to the health system but we create stability in there So to summarize, we've got a unique systems oversight and a broad clinical uh, scope to be able to make those tough decisions that dictate patient's movements and resource allocation, et cetera. And um, our second big uh, priority or value adding benefit is the fact that we can stabilize and treat the the, the, the acutely ill, specifically those with reversible causes. If you look at the health system at the moment and how it's designed around emergency care provision, it is much different to what it uh, is supposed to look like. Yeah,
0: and the potential, the potential it could look like. And the
1: potential. And I think for us moving forward, specifically in this fiscal climate, we have to focus on what value we can we provide to the health system and to patients and then redesign the health system to suit that and, and perhaps move away from filling gaps in the health system because as we noted it that dilutes our value our value adding uh, capabilities and it actually takes us away from our core function it makes us less efficient with managing um, the acutely ill
0: i think i think one thing to to just add there is we underestimate sometimes the value that we do add in non intervention for a patient that presents to an emergency unit. And a lot of people who work in emergency units, I think, um, don't realize or underestimate the value that they've given to a patient just by reassuring them or sort of giving them an appropriate workup, outpatient workup or outpatient follow-up plan, or just by simple reassurance. Your your baby looks fine. You're, I know you are very concerned, um, but from my professional opinion, you can watch it closely at home. And if this or this or this happens, then, then by all means come back. But that in itself, that reassurance, that advice is a hugely beneficial part of the healthcare system.
1: 100%. And then, why it's, if I look at training of emergency medicine or training of those concepts, let, let's rather move away. If I look at the training of the competencies that you describe now, it's not very well taught in other disciplines. The, the ability to discharge risk stratify, space. the ability to decide when to discharge or not. It, it's, there are certain skills and competencies that are quite unique to emergency uh, medicine. Unfortunately, it's not trained very well in undergrad at the moment. So our emergency medicine platform, our training platform for undergrads is not well developed. It's not standardized yet and uh, some universities have offer emergency programs to undergrad training, and some have very, very limited exposure, unfortunately. And when I look at... When you delve a little bit further into the training of undergrads, we are trained in silos. We are trained in medicine, and then we are trained in emergency medicine, and then we are trained in orthopedics, and then rehab. We lack... is a... a it creates the um, expectation that care provision is also siloed and compartmentalized and, compartmentalized. and that um, creates a barrier with a student or the future healthcare provider to understand the health system and the pathway of the, the path of care to be able to make those decisions so the way we train is in essence also a barrier to um to making those tough decisions because you need a level of insight and understanding yeah. of the health system. Secondly, because we are trained in a tertiary environment, which is the furthest away from community-based medicine and district-level care, where, where we see where the burden of uh, um, emergency care is being provided, yeah. this creates a further uh, barrier because being trained in an academic environment uh, the priorities is a lot different to when you are trained or when you work in a district-level or community-level hospital. Uh, academic environments, the focus is completely different. They, The resource allocation and 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 is a lot different to what we have. And for, for doctors to make that, um, to realize that takes a couple of years. It yeah. takes a little bit of experience and a little bit of guidance, and that is where emergency medicine fills a gap at the moment. Also... And I think this is also an important point. Um, when you talk about health outcomes, this, the social, the determinants of health, of which there are social determinants, economical determinants, et cetera, plays a far bigger role in health outcomes than the medical interventions that we do. Yes, yeah. Those determinants of health are not taught very well in, in undergrad, et cetera, et cetera. And that provides a big that provides uh, the necessary knowledge and understanding and the insight to also make decisions about discharges and risk stratification, et cetera. And the
0: the value added or the the perception of value of a good service.
1: 100%. And I think that in emergency medicine and emergency centers, et cetera, we are, um, because we are at the interface between the public and the health system, facility-based health system, we are forced to understand and uh, these determinants and and incorporate it into our um, treatment plans or care pathways and I think that's where we uh, have a lot of a lot more insight on on these decisions because of our where we work
0: to to sort of change the topic a bit um in terms of uh, what you were saying about as an emergency medicine providers we are often faced with the decisions about the interface between primary and tertiary care. And um, let's talk a little bit about the interpersonal relationships with, between doctors at all of those uh, levels. All right. I think that we are in a bit of a unique situation in that when we receive a lot of referrals from primary care, as well as having to make a lot of referrals to tertiary care. Um, And I think that gives us a bit of humility and insight in how to receive and how to make referrals with uh, understanding and non-obstructive behavior. And a, a personal observation, which is, again, anecdotal, I don't think that this has been studied, it might have been, is the higher up the food chain in terms of the, not necessarily your expertise or knowledge, but in terms of the size of the facility you work in, um The more obstructive people tend to become um how do we how do we alleviate that? How do we get everybody on the same page and i think I think research and shared data and shared uh, knowledge can go a long way, but um how can we spread uh, more of a sort of accommodating environment between doctors
1: I think part of the answer to this question lies in the way we train. And I've already mentioned that we trained, uh, our training is compartmentalized and within that compartment, whether it's medicine, emergency medicine, we try to do the best according to what our expectations and our perception of good health is within that. It's very difficult to see the longitudinal journey and uh, the actual outcomes of patients By looking, by being trained in a compartment and practicing within a compartment, so so the first thing I think that is that may help with this is the concept of care pathways. We should invest in looking at a care, the care pathway of a patient, as opposed to a compartmentalized uh, um, approach, and this automatically will involve. Everyone from the t- onset of symptoms, uh, EMS, primary health care, uh, the district health system, maybe regional and tertiary. And only then will we be able to understand the value that we actually bring. And only then will we be able to understand each other's value in the different sectors and our roles in the different sectors. Um, so, So focusing on care pathways instead of, about mentalizing discussions.
0: In terms of, uh, you said, sort of um, what is needed in this facility may not be needed in that facility. Sometimes sometimes, um, new research and new data and new ideas can actually be applied to various different facilities, um, but are not because the way in which things are done at a certain hospital Mm -hmm. through different teaching, different leadership, different uh, when people say, oh, it's just always been done like that here, for example. But then somebody who's had experience somewhere else, either in training or students or whenever they were uh, pick up ideas or pick up knowledge, for a clinical example, um, inotropes through a peripheral IV line. A lot of uh, research suggests that that's perfectly fine and it saves a primary care provider a lot of time, not having to put up a central line, but in certain settings, that is a big no-no, and God forbid that you give uh, an through a peripheral line. Mm-hmm. Another example is like waiting for creatinines before CT scans. A lot of places that's um, recognized as a null and void, radiologists think it's completely fine, and in some places it's a huge no-no, and that's, those are at different places in the same province in the same health system and it causes a lot of interpersonal fighting because if i've done it one way the whole my whole sort of career now i've moved to another place where someone says i can't do it like that it causes tension and that often comes from a a sharing and a and a accessibility of up-to-date research and knowledge and um but it also comes from an unwillingness to to access that knowledge. And so, how do we how do we make it more? How do we how do we sort of spread ideas in a more interpersonally um, friendly way, <laughs> put it like that?
1: And how do we how
0: do we how do we um, encourage change through through research and accessing data?
1: So, firstly, to answer that question, it's a multifaceted question. And then there's a lot of different ways I can answer this. From a research point of view, um, when it comes to knowledge translation, uh, we're not very good at that. Um, If you unpack the process of knowledge translation, it actually starts before you start the study. Uh, That's when you have stakeholder engagement and whether that's the community uh, understanding community values or stakeholder values and stakeholder expectations etc so the process of knowledge translation actually starts right from the beginning of the process the conceptualization of this research project So we understand what are all the the, the dynamic um, variables that play a role in this situation and then you try and answer the question with with your research and then you feedback you feedback the um, information so knowledge translation depends on the type of outcome so what are we looking at and the audience so if you look at if the audience for example is students medical students as opposed to policy makers your medium your platform where the knowledge translation would um, be centralized around would be a lot different so you need to understand who are the audience. And, and, and the audience de- depends on who are your stakeholders. So you have to do a stakeholder mapping, essentially. And that is a process that that probably needs to happen concurrently with the research uh, process. Stakeholder mapping, understanding uh, where the power lies, which, which stakeholders has the most influence, has the most interest. Uh, there's a way to map those. So people with high interest and high influence, those are the ones that you target. Low interest and low low influence, you're probably not involved at this stage. And then there's varying, uh, the the spectrum varies in between. And then you target your um, knowledge translation strategy towards the audience or the the most appropriate um, platform or medium. We're not very good at that um, for various reasons. For for example, it's my... A perception that in a- the academic sphere and the service sphere is not always uh, aligned, and and th- the best way to tackle this, the best way to tackle improvement is for, it, according to me, it's the pro- is the is the problem orientated approach. You have a problem, you unpack the problem with the relevant stakeholders. For example, if the problem is um, critical care transfers, for example, or the Stake, the stakeholders that have an impact or, or have either interest or influence on this subject. Let's unpack it. What is due to what elements needs to be answered by science? What is a training or education problem? What is a policy guideline, standardization? Where does the problem lie? And then we tackle it in each of the individual concepts, bring it together and then research in itself is it's very difficult to change practice. Um, so it so has to be a coordinated Improvement process that has to involve uh, all the all the stakeholders, all the people, the, pe- the people involved.
0: And the research is just
1: one. It's one, one component, component of, the of improvement. Improvement. that. Yeah, and and, yeah. and that is difficult. And if the academic sphere and the service sphere remains apart, it's it's going to be very difficult to fill that gap. Yeah. If it's a coordinated process, say, listen, let's tackle this problem. Let's unpack it, and then. Each and everyone goes and do their thing and come back. That's most likely the best way to tackle these issues. So, so in some way, I think research has big value and it's it's got a specific, very specific uh, purpose um, in in our improving health outcomes. But research by itself in an uncoordinated yeah. uh, sector is is uh, carries little value. Yes. Yeah.
0: Because and how do we how do we uh, disseminate it? How do we re- how do we spread? Good ideas to to the service sector as well as to the policymakers. Yeah, so. And who are the policymakers? (laughs) Like often people refer to protocol and policy, but when you ask them to show you one, it doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, So, so firstly, the policymakers are much closer to us than what we think. If we would have to do a stakeholder mapping, of emergency care provision in the province. Um, for example, we've got Heike Getelt, who's the provincial uh, specialist in emergency medicine. We've got Craig Wiley, who's the, the director of EMS, et so We've got key people and uh, key leadership positions that are very, very influential and has quite a lot of influence and control over what happens. So our policy makers or those who influence policy decisions are much closer, much within our circle of influence, much more within our circle of influence now than about 10 years ago. So um, emergency medicine in general is not well represented. It is seen as a, as a new speciality, even though we are 20 years old uh, in 2024, it is seen as a new speciality by many and 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 we're not well represented in circles and and committees who has the power to implement big changes during the last 5 years we have um our representation has increased quite a bit we are now part of the conversations we are now in the trauma initiatives with the trauma surgeons and with the surgeons and with the nurses we are now in um, the mental health sphere, whether it's psychiatrists, etc. We are in the um, orthopedic and surgical uh, sphere because they've realised that emergency care plays a big role in in
0: and who accesses their service. Exactly.
1: So, so we are. We have our representation has increased during the last five years. Our influence and policymakers are a lot closer to us. So, I can say with, and I'm happy to say that. Those conversations, those coordinated conversations, is happening, and uh, there are quite a lot of projects running in the background. Um, uh, into all the different components uh, from a service point of view, science, uh, research, uh, governance, uh, education, training, etc., policy, etc. So, there's quite a lot happening uh, in the background, and uh, I think driven. By this fiscal crisis and the the need for a redesign and a rethink, I think we can expect a lot of change in the next five years.
0: You said earlier, it takes a crisis to force change. Um, so while we're talking about that, while we're talking about the fiscal crisis and everything, um, it seems that the burden on our healthcare system is is increasing. It feels almost like palpably. Feels like almost every day there are more people, more beds needed, more uh, decisions being made out of lack of resources than before. And I know it's that's a hugely different thing across the province, across the rest of the country, and across the rest of Africa. That is a hugely different um, ball game, but it feels like there's an overburdening of a system and an under-provision on the system's behalf, Um, and that seems to be getting worse um, every day. And now when we see more people waiting, when we see the tertiary care system and the primary care system both sort of having shortcomings that are forcing people to emergency and unscheduled care, then we get things like budget cuts and staff shortages, and now we can't do this, we can't do that. Um, what you said earlier is reassuring, but is there more of a plan? Is there, Are we doing things to sort of reevaluate this and how we work?
1: Yeah, so if you look at emergency care provision in generally, globally, there is a similar pattern all around the world at the moment. Waiting times in the UK is skyrocketing. Um, the same discussions we are having is being held in, on all the continents in the mm, U.S. In
0: Canada, there are people waiting up on stretches. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, that's the best there is. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and, well, best in terms of our perception of quality. 100 yeah.
1: And the demand for emergency care over the last decade has slowly increased, slowly, but steadily increasing without the matching of, uh, resources and 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 staffing crowding is a major factor globally and and even the ems offload times is increasing and all of that contributes to morbidity and mortality as you as you know burnout and staff well-being is a big factor because uh, about 60% of our staff is anticipated to have significant symptoms related to burnout um we we know image emer- healthcare providers in the emergency care sphere has the worst life expectancy and very bad divorce rate as well. So so from a staffing point of view as well, it's something that's not sustainable um, and the staffing models are not conducive to to staff well-being and long-term retention. So all of these factors increase the utility or the access, the the requirement healthcare needs from an acute care point of view. And... If the question is, how much staff do we need to fill the gap? I I almost want to challenge it. I want to ask, will we ever be able to to fill fill that gap? gap? And I think we won't because of all these dynamic factors that are out of our control. Um, It reminds me of an interview in the week, I think, with uh, our mayor, uh, Jordan Lewis, where they asked him about housing. And they asked the question, "Will will, will there ever come a time where all people will have access to a house. And the question, and he said no, and, it, and he said it with lots of confidence, and then he justified it by saying, we've increased the m- number of houses that we build per annum year on year. And he quoted a number, say so it's around 6,500 or something. But he said that number at the moment is equal to the daily micro... Um, micro. Micro-immigration, the daily, so the per annum housing output is equal to the daily. So he says, there's no doubt in his mind that we, con- con- if we continue like we are, we won't be able to, to bridge that gap ever. And I have a similar feeling to emergency care. So the only, I think more staff, more resources is not the answer. It may plug temporary gaps. Um, there's two things that we, we need to define Um, that we need to do. The first thing is define what is the minimum staffing levels, the minimum safe staffing levels for any environment. And that is something that we don't know at the moment. There's a lot of studying, there's a lot of research going into it at the moment, trying to define um, staffing models, staffing norms, and minimum staffing, safe staffing uh, uh, levels. So that's the first thing. Understanding what, what is the minimum we should be able to do, ensure a safe environment. And the second thing is the only way we're going to improve this capacity demand mismatch is a complete redesign of of the health system, taking into consideration what I mentioned earlier on what is the purpose of emergency medicine, what value do we bring to the health system, and then we design everything around that. And and it's a very specific niche, um, and it's much different to what is currently happening.
0: One of one of the things that Almiro said in our first episode was we can't, uh, we're not going to solve the problem by continuing what we are currently doing just harder. We have to change. Um, and a, a lot of different countries have tried different means of change. Um, in the UK, they've got a telephonic service, like a triage service, which works to an extent and has showed decreased um Demand on the on the on the emergency system, although it's still very high and the waiting times are still very long, and it also depends who is on the phone because it's a, usually a triage nurse who answers the phone and they do not have enough clout to tell someone with chest pain not to come to hospital, even if so they've got certain trigger words. Um, in Scandinavia, I know that you have to get. Permission first before you go to an emergency unit. You have to either get permission from a 24-hour GP, which tend to not exist in the in the low resource setting, low income settings in South Africa. Um, that often poses different problems. In the UK, their their telephonic triage service. A lot of the patients come in demanding to be seen quicker because they've now phoned ahead, and they and uh, their perception is that allows them to rush in and be and and all the doctors must run to sort of attend to the emergency because the person on the phone said they must rush. Is there anything that we are working on in South Africa at the moment along these lines to try and make the system more efficient or work better?
1: So we've got quite a lot of research done by Willem Stashen and all his co-investigators on telephone triage for the pre-hospital setting. Um, quite substantial research in multiple languages as well. And uh, we've reached a stage where we can move towards the implementation phase. And it's something that is going to work with the server side uh, during the course of the year into next year. So from an EMS pre-hospital point of view, there's a lot of research, and I think there'll be a lot of changes going forward that will actually save money. From a facility-based point of view, we should invest in... We should first realize that unscheduled care does not equal emergency care. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that the hospital and the health system has a role to play with regards to unscheduled care. Second, thirdly, we need to invest into a sorting system. So not triage. Triage says, what do we see for sorting means? What does this patient need? And that means a lot of resources right in the beginning of a patient of the patient care process, even before triage. Someone senior, senior team eyeballing, and then that should activate different uh, aspects, whether it's emergency medicine, whether it's uh, a general medicine area, general inquiries, whether it's a booking, that should activate the other options, um, depending on the patient's uh, requirements and needs. So so I feel pre-hospital telephonic triage, we also need to understand which patients EMS can safely discharge at the scene. Yeah. Yeah. When the patients arrive at the hospital, we need to understand which patients can be safely discharged. And then we need to invest in the sorting process and the understanding that unscheduled care is a hospital and a health system function, not an emergency medicine function. And then get the patient. That's that's probably what we need to invest in. We need in to it. look
0: into. And yeah. that also that yeah. also involves front-loading. A system with more senior decision-makers at the beginning, like I said 100%. earlier about emergency medicine training you to be able to make 100%. difficult, yeah. quick decisions.
1: Yeah. 100%. Front-loading is, is, is good evidence to suggest that uh, there's benefit to it from a yeah. patient outcome point of view and from a health system's point of view.
0: Yeah. Um, and in terms of that uh, spread of decision-making, in terms of location, uh, and I feel like telehealth, Apps like Vula and apps like sort of med tech in general, um, have a lot of have a lot of uh, potential here. But how do we, um, decongest decision making? Uh, or sorry, delocalize is a better word. Um, decision making that is currently focused very much in urban centers and big university hospitals, uh, or hospitals attached to a university. How do we? broaden that and make it more accessible in the more rural settings in South Africa um where senior advice and and like sort of almost like you said paternalistic decision making is not so far away and so disconnected from the decision that needs to be made at the time and at, at the service level
1: so i think there's a long term and short term uh, um, strategies that one can take to to answer that, but from a community of practice point of view, it's the, it's a the concept where a group of people um, challenge, uh, take take on challenges, and try and figure out what's best for that challenge. And I and I I think everybody on the care pathway spectrum, from EMS right until the tertiary environment, as a group, as a community should make the decisions for uh, that will influence the health outcomes. So that needs to be incorporated into the governance structures, et cetera, instead of um, the central or the tertiary hospitals or the specialists who perhaps do not have the insight of the individual systems making all the decisions. That is basically what's happening at the moment. I feel family physicians are key to this process. They are, understand the health system, the needs, the resources, the the determinants of health. They are very well positioned to to coordinate these kind of discussions. But unfortunately, the power that goes along with decision making and guidelines and proposals are often uh, nested in the tertiary or the academic environment.
0: But yeah, so you mentioned the community of, of decision-making and the communication of that. I feel like the more we have in common across different hospitals and different settings, and the more people that think about this as a healthcare pathway, the easier it is to communicate with uh, different people and different uh, receivers and um, senders of of referrals. For example, if you... Have worked in a certain hospital before, and if people know you there, anecdotally, or if or if you if somebody is now rotating at a primary care facility and is referring a patient to you, it changes from oh this this place always sends us complete rubbish and we must and whatever just just let them come they it'll probably be an undifferentiated patient when they arrive, to oh I actually know so and so they used to work here. They must know what they're doing, and the patient's probably actually sick, and that is a completely um, unwarranted feeling. Um, and I feel like the because of trust and communication, it it makes it so much easier. If we could broaden that and make communication better, we'd end up trusting a lot of our colleagues more, which is which is sadly something that is not very common in South Africa. It's as soon as you're as soon as Someone you don't know, or a hospital or institution that you are not familiar with, tries to refer your patient. Your hackles go up, and I feel like there are too many hackles in South Africa and healthcare at the moment.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent, and linked linked to my previous answer, um, the goal of outreach and this should be a you should, with intent, try and mend relationships. Between the two teams or between teams and uh, streamline um, care pathway discussions. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only way we uh, where we could have um, good communication. And there's lots of evidence that uh, the better the communication, the better the health outcomes Mm -hmm. for patients. And we recently unpacked the role of an emergency physician or emergency clinicians uh, as part of a process to uh, redesign our curriculum completely. And we've come up with a set of competencies, a list of competencies, core competencies, and I can. it reflects everything we have spoken about today. Co- communication, leadership, um, teamwork, etc. Those are core competencies that came out from this process. Subsequently, in our curriculum, moving forward, they will be trained and assessed. So it's not a Uh, It's good if you have these skills, we've um, determined that they are essential to what we do, and now it will be trained and assessed. And I think that should reflect in practice.
0: And I think also communication to patients themselves. Like, uh, we do get training on your bedside manner and communication about a disease process and explaining a disease to a patient. That is sort of quite well done, I feel. And that has always been well done, or some better than others, again. But what I don't feel like is, is well done is explaining the care pathway to a patient and managing expectations of care in terms of what will happen now. Um, d- between different systems, also between private care and public care, um, a lot of private uh, providers uh, have, a lot of patients are somewhere in between the financial bracket that allows them private care and public care. And some of them access private care, which then turns into public care. And that is often investigation-based, scopes, CT scans, MRIs, etc. And I feel like a lot of private providers, which trained in the same institutions that we do, they don't explain to patients that, yes, we think you need a G-scope, we think you need a scan. They might not think you need a scan. They might think you need a scan, but only in six months' time. Um, etc. and then and then there's a lot of miscommunication. Patients come to an emergency unit because they think they desperately need a scan, and then they are very disappointed with the result of their care. And that's not necessarily a a quality problem. That's a communication problem.
1: I, I agree with you. I think in many ways we are our, our own worst enemy. We create expectations uh, with the community, with patients that that. unrealistic and that can't be met and um, on an individual basis is a good example is what you just had there's an expectation with that patient that they will get this because it is urgent but even on a broader population base there's this expectation that they have on the health system is much different than what the health system can provide and that is the arguably the biggest uh, challenge we have is how to bridge that
0: gap and where does that come from where does that come from TV like watching New Amsterdam and seeing people rush into an emergency center or- <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think partially yeah this is a tough one we it, we probably need to investigate but I, I think it's it, it's multifactorial um, uh, because we've got the dual system the private and the and the and the public sector system and the private system is a um, fee for service based model, so the more we do, the more income we get that, that model often leads to over investigation and over more interventions and more
0: et cetera. and the medical aids will pay, so let's just do it yeah, yeah.
1: And, and, and that has probably contributed to this expectation that good health care is what v- is happening investigation as a based health yeah. So that contributed, and I think media has as well. And um, I think a lack of communication to the population of what the health system can offer. And this is something that's a a very sensitive matter, but I I think there's a big disconnect between what can be offered and what is expected to be offered.
0: One of the goals of this podcast uh, from the start is to reassure the doctors and the other healthcare providers of South Africa especially the ones directly in the service sphere, um, as opposed to the academic sphere or the research sphere or the public health sphere, that things are being done behind the scenes and things are being thought about and people are thinking about these systemic problems and um, ways to fix them. So is it safe to say from your perspective that that is happening?
1: Yes, so a lot, of, a lot has changed during the last few years and I can, I can say with a lot of confidence that um, the vehicle for change looks a lot different now than then and I'm confident that in the next few years there will be significant changes. From a power point of view, influence point of view, we um, have access to people in power that can represent us in the big decision-making bodies. And I think with the redesign and restructuring of emergency care provision, we are on track to effect change in the next few years.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Clint. Um, I really enjoyed that and I hope our listeners did too.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks.
0: Alright, that is all for this month's episode. As always, please get in touch at dan at badem.co.za or visit our website badem.co.za for lots of content. There's new exciting stuff to come, so please like and subscribe and we will see you next time.